All right, could you please uh, turn with me to the book of Hebrews or scroll with me, uh, if you're using a phone, to the book of Hebrews and Hebrews chapter uh, 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, we're reading out of the English Standard Version, if you're new with us, ESV. One of the reasons why I think it is a good idea for the main preaching diet of a church to come from walking through books of the Bible is because it forces you to spend time in texts that you ordinarily would probably not choose uh, yourself. And for the next two weeks, we have such a diet. Because we come once again to some of the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And so we've been hearing about Christ as a great high priest at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And just to catch you up really, really quickly, because it does actually matter uh, in the section we're coming to, priests represent people before God. And so the great high priest was the person in Israel who would represent the people of Israel before God once a year going into the very copy of the presence of God called the Holy of Holies in the temple. And they would offer sacrifices for themselves and then uh, on behalf of the people on what was called the Day of Atonement. And the writer of Hebrews has been going into the qualifications for why Jesus is able to be the great high priest. The, under the Old Covenant, the priests were uh, sons of Aaron, and they were of the tribe of Levi. And he's just been told here in Hebrews chapter 5 that Jesus Christ is qualified because he is the Son of God, and even though he's not of the tribe of Levi, he is qualified because he is of the order of Melchizedek. And that big word is going to come up again soon. And Melchizedek was a shadowy figure in the Old Testament. And in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, it says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. And Melchizedek was different because he comes out of nowhere, no father, no mother, not even a Jew. And he was king and he was priest. And showing, the book of Hebrews is showing that Jesus is king and he is priest in the order of Melchizedek. A new priesthood has come. And this is better than the one we had before. And then there's this abrupt break here. In chapter 5, verse 11. The first warning, the first of two warnings that are coming up, and we're going to do them this week and next week. The first warning is a rebuke for being dull of hearing. The second warning starts in verse 4 of chapter 6, and it speaks of the dangers of apostasy. So we're just going to look at that first one today. And very simply, to summarize what's going on, the writer of Hebrews rebukes the people for being dull of hearing and spiritually immature, and then he calls them forward to maturity. And so this is a, a warning for us. We've got multiple lessons 
And so let's read the Word of God. We'll start in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washing the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This is the word of God. There is a rebuke here in the first section at the end of chapter 5. The rebuke is this. You have become dull of hearing. You're not listening. You're not really getting it. I have to tell you again and again and again. And I, I, as I was preparing this week, I thought there's a certain irony that the deaf guy is preaching on being dull of hearing. But here we are. Um, very simply, you're not listening. You're not listening. You're apathetic to what you're hearing. And I want to point out that there is a sense in which this is not saying they are inferior as believers. In chapter 3, verse 1, they've been called holy brothers. Their holiness, their spiritual stature comes ultimately because they are believers in Christ. They are in Christ, they are set apart in Him. Their immaturity does not mean they are worthless as Christians. That's important. But it's still not a good thing. This section gets misused so much, so I want to be careful, and I want to work through it, uh, work through it uh, verse by verse. We must do a little bit of work to understand this. In the immediate context, of the end of verse 11, he says, "About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain." What is that talking about? About this we have much to say. What's that tied to? It's tied to chapter 5, verse 1 to 10, the discussion about Jesus being the great high priest of the order of Melchizedek, it says in verse 10, and then it just stops, abruptly stops, and it says, I want to talk about this, but I can't. He's been talking about how Jesus is better than angels, is better than the Old Covenant, he's better than Moses, he's better uh, than the Old Covenant priesthood, and things are starting to get complex. And what he's saying is, are you listening? Is this on? Are you following? That's the rebuke. 
Do you care? The book of Hebrews begins with the statement that God has spoken through his Son in these last days. Christ is prophet who speaks on behalf of God, priest who brings people to God, and king who rules over this kingdom of God. And as a prophet, he speaks, and he speaks a message of salvation. And it says in chapter 2, verse 3, it was declared to us by the Lord. He says the apostles and the people that wrote scripture, like the writer of Hebrews, they heard this message from Christ. They're just simply passing it on. Paul and Peter did not invent the gospel. It came to them via Jesus Christ. And it says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And that helps us to really see the next rebuke that comes in chapter 6. And this is why it is such a serious rebuke to be told that you are dull of hearing. The writer is saying, you're apathetic towards the beautiful saving work of Christ. You're apathetic about who Jesus Christ is. Can you imagine if you have a friend and you don't care about that friend? You're not interested in their story. You're not interested in who they are. That's a bad thing, right? That's not going to be a very good friendship. It's going to be like one of those 12-year-old boy friendships that I had where you just have a mutual interest and you do that, but you don't really care about each other, right? Um, No offense to 12-year-old boys. Um, Can you imagine that? How awful when you're speaking about Christ, your Savior. I don't care. There is also a, a cultural aspect to this rebuke. These are predominantly Jewish Christians tempted to go back to Judaism. And it makes sense that they would be tempted to go back to Judaism. We'll get into some of the reasons for that. But when the southern kingdom of Judah went into exile, the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 2, he said this, The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, who have eyes to see, but see not, who have ears to hear, but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. All throughout Ezekiel, all throughout Isaiah, are phrases to this effect that you have ears to hear, but you do not listen. They would have picked up that they are being given a rebuke that had previously been given to their ancestors. That is a problem. You don't listen. This is not good at all. And so the writer of Hebrews then gives them two Two illustrations for what has happened because of their dullness of hearing. This is, at this point, while this letter is being read out, people's palms would have started sweating. They would have gotten uncomfortable. People would have swallowed their gum, you know. It would have just been not fun at all. The rebuke is illustrated. It says in verse 12, At this point you should be teachers. 
Is that saying that they should all be pastors? No. But it's saying that they've been Christians for long enough that they should be able to teach others. Do you know that I am not the only person in the church who should teach the Bible? It's, and be able, it's like the church is supposed to have mature Christians within it and they're able to actually share and teach and help other people along. Because of these people's dullness of hearing, they have not actually matured and therefore are no good for teaching the basics of the faith to those that are less spiritually mature than them. And he uses two pictures of food. And I love it so often when Scripture uses illustrations because sometimes the illustrations are so simple. Perhaps we should wonder, are we morons? Are we completely stupid that it needs to use such basic illustrations? But they're helpful. The two pictures used are food and human age. And then he combines them. Look what it says there. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the work of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature. He uses a picture of food. He's saying to them, you start with milk, you've gone on to solid food, and now you're back to milk. What happened? Right? That, that's, what, that's what's going on here. Milk is not bad. Right? It's not a bad thing, but it's a starting block. You start, you start with milk, you move on to solids. How strange would it be if you had a child and you start feeding them milk and then you move them on to solids at one or however old that, that happens and then they revert back to milk and stop eating solids. It makes no sense. That's what he's saying. And we're told here that milk is elementary truths, beginner truths. He's using the human, human growth as an illustration here. Milk is elementary truths. Solid food is more profound truths. That's the first illustration. The second one is age. He's saying to them, you were baby Christians. By this point, you're supposed to be mature Christians. You're supposed to have grown up. Right? It's... Children grow up to be adults. But what you've done is you've started growing up and then you've gone backwards. There's something unnatural about that. And so he then puts those two things together, the age and the food, and he says solid food is for the mature. Grown men and women do not live on milk. Why has this happened? Why have they learned their ABCs, started speaking words, and then gone back to the ABCs? There could be numerous reasons for this. One is that the, these people are facing persecution. We're told that in chapter 13. Right at the end of the book, it starts talking about persecution. These people are suffering from persecution. This can be from the government, the Roman government. This could be from Jewish family members. Some of you in this very church have faced persecution from your family. You've been told to give up on Christ. 
these people are being told that they have let the family down by going from Judaism to its fulfillment, which is Christianity and Christ. And so the temptation is, if they simply go back to what they had, perhaps the difficulty would go away. And don't we have this wonderful ability as humans to just rationalize things away? To try and get what we want? We want ease. We want the persecution to, to go away. We want our families to like us again. So we say, ah, oh, it's not that different. Not that different. Jesus, Lamb of God, Lamb at this temple, killing it, same thing, whatever. That's what they're doing. And so they become dull of hearing. The hardest people to teach are people that think they know everything or people who aren't actually interested in learning more. They become dull of hearing. And so if I could summarize part of this rebuke, they are being told, your lack of doctrinal understanding is leading to a lack of spiritual maturity and your lack of spiritual maturity is leading to a lack of doctrinal understanding. Your lack of doctrinal understanding leads to a lack of spiritual maturity. Your lack of spiritual maturity leads to a lack of doctrinal understanding. It's a vicious cycle. You're immature because you're on milk. And because you're on milk, you're immature. And people think, the way we live the Christian life, we think, oh, well, that, well, fine. Well, that just affects me. Well, notice it says, at this point, you should be teachers. Do you know that your immaturity, and I'll conclude myself in this, your immaturity affects the whole church. And that mature Christians that respond well and teach sound doctrine and love well and all these, all aspects of the Christian life help make everyone else better. Sanctification is a team project. And so the rest of this passage really helps us to understand why sound doctrinal understanding is very, very important. If the book of Hebrews has shown us anything, it's that some of the distinctions that people make about the Christian life are, are untrue. Some people say Christianity is a person, Jesus Christ. Christianity is doctrine. No, no, no. Christianity is a life. It's a life that's supposed to be lived. Might I submit to you that if we read this book, it shows us Christianity is a person, a doctrine, and a life. It is all three. And they all affect one another. And so they're told, be discerning. Verse 14, those who have taken solid food have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. A discerning person is someone who is able to look at something whether it's truth or a situation, and discern what's good, what's not. Rightly divide the word of truth, it says in other places. Rightly divide truth from error. 
And I want to say this. Discernment is not for sport. Has anyone read something on the internet called a discernment blog? You seen those? Most of you don't have Twitter. So blessed are you. Um, there are hundreds and thousands of discernment websites out on the internet. Their entire point seems to be to create a dumpster fire. But the reality is these discernment blogs are just trying to point out error. And most of them are really, really bad. Because the people aren't actually discerning. They view everything as bad. John MacArthur this, Matt Chandler this, this is this, and they just, it's, it's awful. The irony is a lot of what is called discernment is not actually discernment. And some people, they just trash everything in the name of discernment. I want to stay away from bad teaching. And then you just view everything with the utmost skepticism. Like the old saying, if all you've got is a hammer, everything appears to be a nail. That's not good. Discernment is very, very important in the Christian life. I, I'm, I'm terrible at illustrations, so I came up with one. Right? Imagine you are driving your car, kind of in the middle of nowhere, okay, outside of Hamilton, and um, so, um, and, 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 and your car breaks, uh, your car runs out of fuel, okay, your car runs out of fuel, and so you're just, you're waiting there, and no one's around, and you start getting very, very thirsty, and so a guy with a big four-wheel drive comes along, and he uh, jumps out and asks you what's wrong, and you tell him, we ran out of fuel, and we're very thirsty, um, we've been waiting for hours. And he says, great. He pulls out two big containers, puts them down. I got some fuel and I got some water for you. Happy to help. And you go, containers are identical for whatever reason. Um, and you go, what are you going to do? You're going to work out which one's the fuel and which one's the water. You're going to drink the water, and you're going to put the fuel in your car. Imagine if you said, nah, I'm skeptical, I don't trust you, I'm not going to take either of them. Well, then you don't get helped. But imagine you show no discernment at all, and you drink, you drink the fuel, you put the water in your car, it's going to go bad. You have to show discernment. Every one of you does this each week when you check to see if the milk has gone off or not before you drink it. And you've done that thing one time where you use a drink off milk, right? Discernment. It's something that we practice every day. Is it safe to cross the street? No, there's a car coming. Stop. Discernment in a spiritual sense is distinguishing between truth and error. And Ephesians chapter 4 tells us something in a beautiful way that shows the absolute importance of how this all comes together. It says in Ephesians 4.13, it says that we've given pastors and teachers to the church, and then it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith 
and of knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. One of the goals, one of the true goals of the Christian life is to grow up in spiritual maturity, and that is shown as being Christ-likeness. That we might not be like children or those that are weak that are just tossed around. Jesus is not God. Okay, that sounds good. Jesus is God. Oh, that sounds... And you're just grabbing. Maturity comes slowly through sound doctrine and teaching, believing it, seeking after Christ's likeness. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 3 moves on from the rebuke and it gives a call a call to go on to maturity look at the verse 1 it says therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation there is now a call forward you've been told you're wrong it helps to be shown the right way and now chapter 6, verse 1, oh my goodness, this text is used in so many incorrect ways, and I would argue dangerous ways. One way this text is used is we're told we need to move on from doctrine and go on to Christian living. Leave behind the elementary doctrine of Christ and just go focus on Christian living. No, those are connected. But perhaps one of the worst ways I've seen this used is that people read the elementary doctrine of Christ as simply being the gospel, and it's, they say this text means we need to move on from the gospel of Jesus Christ and we need to move on to more important things. Anyone heard this text used that way? You have a few hands going up. It absolutely happens. And many churches, even if they would not say this from Hebrews 6.1, this is functionally what happens. The gospel is the way into the church. You believe the saving message of Christ. You come in, you get baptized, and then we move on to greater things. And the gospel is simply a message tacked on the end of a sermon so you can get saved. But the rest of the ministry is focused on other stuff. That is a real problem, and this text gets used to uh, to show that kind of idea. I want to suggest to you that the call here is not to move on from Christ and the gospel, but to go deeper. As a call to go deeper, and to use the illustration found here it is to continue boating on the foundation, boat on the foundation of what these people already know. The elementary doctrine of Christ means the beginning word, the ABCs. When you learn a language, you don't throw the alphabet away afterwards. You keep it. You boat on it. And that's what this is saying. It's not a bad thing to have the elementary doctrine. The issue for these people 
is that they're not able to handle the difficulty of their circumstances, the false teaching that's coming at them, and all the temptations they face because they're stunted in their spiritual growth because they only know the basics. That's a problem. It then lists six things. Six things that are foundational that they need to move on beyond. And I want to submit very quickly that these six things form three pairs. The first pair is repentance from dead works and a faith towards God. That's the first one. The second one is instruction about washings. The word there, baptismon, baptism. And the laying on of hands, okay, receiving of the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The foundation that these people know and need to move on from is repenting of their dead works towards God and of faith to God, baptism and the Holy laying on of hands and receiving the Holy Spirit, and then the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. Basic voting blocks of the Christian life. That's what that is saying. These things are foundational. Are you people still getting hung up on these things? Are you disagreeing over this still? Really? We must ask ourselves, what do you do once you've laid a foundation? We've had a number of houses built on our street uh, over the past uh, year, and one of them has been built very, very slowly. And so every time I pulled into my driveway, I would drive past a section that had been leveled, and then they laid a foundation, a great, nice, concrete, flat foundation, and then they left it for months. It was just there. And it was such an odd thing to look at all the time, and I thought, that's what this is saying. You've got a foundation. You need to build the house on it. And that is what these people are being told. I want us to, to notice the, the corporate nature of this. It says, let us leave the elementary doctrine and go forward. He's including himself. He rebukes them, but then says, hey, let us all, let us come with me. We're all going to go forward in maturity together. He includes himself. Okay. So let us now tie this all together. What is this section here for? What is this rebuke here for? The connection between Hebrews 5.10 with the order of Melchizedek and this rebuke and then going on in chapter 7 verse 1 see 7 verse 1 it says for this Melchizedek king of Salem he stops Talks about Melchizedek, stops, rebukes, and then he picks it up. And the, the context of this really helps us see what is being said. I want to tell you how great Jesus is. I want to show you how amazing he is. You're dull of hearing. You lack uh, doctrinal understanding. Because you lack doctrinal understanding, you lack spiritual maturity. Your lack of spiritual maturity leads to lack of doctrinal understanding. How are we going to break out of this cycle? The answer is, I am going to give you solid food, and you need to receive it, 
and we are going to go forward towards maturity. Rather than saying to these people, I'm going to give you milk now, he says, right, time to wean off. We're going on to solid food. I want to talk about Melchizedek. We're going to talk about Melchizedek. We're going to talk about the Old Covenant. And the rest of the book of Hebrews is him simply going deeper and deeper and deeper into who Jesus is and what he has done. We follow? Application. Number one. Read your Bible. Notice I didn't say read Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. I said read your Bible. Read your Bible. If you read Burkhoff and Barvink and all those things, great. Read your Bible. Theology is very, very intimidating to some of you, and I'm very glad that for many of you it's actually stopped becoming intimidating, but read your Bible. Live in your Bible. It's no good having your word as a lamp to my feet and a light to my path on a coffee mug if you don't read the book. If you've been a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, let me tell you that 20 years of faithful church attendance, reading your Bible, praying, and spending time with other Christians should turn you into a pretty decent, mature Christian. That's what we want. Secondly, recognize that every Christian is a theologian. I mean that. You are a theologian. Put that on your Facebook profile. Right? This week, the results were released from the Ligonier State of Theology uh, survey. Every two years, every two years, they ask the exact same questions to self-identifying evangelical Christians. And I want to add, this is in America. Okay? And this year, one of the questions asked was, true or false? Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Slightly confusing question. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. True or false? Someone yell false, please. Right? Jesus is not created. He's not the first thing created. 78% of people said yes. 78%. That means that eight, basically 80% of self-identifying Christ, evangelical Christians in America hold to heresy. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. That's what the Mormons believe, that Jesus was the first part of creation. Not true. He's God. Thirdly, see the need for doctrinal understanding and spiritual maturity. You live out what you believe. It's true. It says in chapter 6, verse 3, and we're going to conclude with this. The writer says, this we will do if God permits. I struck by the beauty of that sentence. What will we do if God permits? Go on to maturity together. God allows. 
Let me tell you why it makes sense for Christians to pursue mature, spiritual maturity. God is absolute perfection. Jesus Christ is perfect maturity. We agree? In the beginning, God created men and women as image bearers of him. Scripture says, with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. Knowledge of God, righteousness, and true holiness being set apart for God. In the fall, some of this is lost. God raised us up, created us. We failed to listen, and we disobeyed him and ran from him. And we lost this true knowledge of him, righteousness, and holiness. He sent his son into the world to live a perfect life in our place, in our stead. He died upon the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, It was fitting that he, this is Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It is through suffering in our place that Christ is exalted. And we are able to receive knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. And what then becomes of our salvation? Are we then left to be a spirit somewhere on a cloud playing a harp? Is that the end? No. There's a much grander vision than that in Scripture. In 1 John 3, 2, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, this is Christ, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. He says elsewhere, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you shall complete it. And so our plan our goal of maturity is important because Christ is perfect maturity. And the end of salvation is glorified body and we shall be made like Christ. Not that we become God, but that image shall be restored with knowledge and righteousness and true holiness and we shall be created in its image of Christ. The one who is perfectly mature. And so, therefore, our job is to obey and believe these words that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, which is this. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Why should we not be dull of hearing? Because it causes us to miss out on the beauty of the gospel which, by which we are being transformed into the image of Christ, perfectly mature. Let's pray.